the RipperCast. Joining us today to discuss Neil Bell's new book, Capturing Jack the Ripper, is Robert McLaughlin. Robert is the author of First Jack the Ripper Victims Photographs, and he's joining us all the way from Canada. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Allie. Uh, glad to be here today to talk to Neil about his uh, new book. I know I've enjoyed walking around Whitechapel with him and discussing the police of uh, 1888. It's good to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. Also joining us today is author and Ripper researcher Mark Ripper. He writes under the pen name M.W. Oldridge, and he wrote the introduction to Capturing Jack the Ripper, so we're glad to have him on as well. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ali. It's good to be here. And, of course, the man of the hour, Neil Bell himself, whose book we are here to discuss, Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of the Bobby of Victorian England. I hope that's right. London? Was it London? Um, it was London. I, I knew it. I, You know me and names and titles. I'm horrible. I fully admit it. Welcome, Neil. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. I'll edit that in, like, production. <laughs> no, don't keep it in. <laughs> Well, let's get started. Um, uh, As I previously mentioned, Mark Ripper, who is here today, wrote an excellent introduction to Capturing Jack the Ripper, and I would like to begin the podcast by having him read a small excerpt from that introduction. Uh, Mark, if you would not mind. Uh, I will give it a go. Okay. Uh, In this book, Neil Bell considers the strengths and weaknesses of the attempts of London's twin police forces to capture Jack the Ripper. In addition, however, he takes us behind the scenes into the offices of Scotland Yard and the cells at Commercial Commercial Street alike. We peek at the disagreements among London's most senior policemen, and we admire the honesty and decency of constables with, in more than a few cases, quite limited professional experience. We watch as strategies come and go, as efficiencies are wrung out, and as new protocols are forced to develop. And we see the personal cost of policing, the mark that the job left on its practitioners and their families, the risks that were sometimes faced, the camaraderie and the stress, and swirling around every lonely bobby on the beach with only his lantern for company, the night side of nature in the den of the East End. Okay, and I wanted him to read that because I really do think that that sort of sums up the spirit of the book, which I do believe Neil really captured in this book. So, Neil, I kind of wanted, as a follow-up to that, like, what was your intention of going in and, and writing this book? Exactly that. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, next question. Uh, and basically, I found that there was a, there's a, a few books out there that kind of covered the policing aspect of the Whitechapel murders. However, it kind of went to, well, rather, it, it stopped at, at senior level. We're talking at Abilene level, Swanson level, you know, detective inspector level. Um, and people tend to think during the, the murders, that's all the police were doing were hunting Jack the Ripper. When in reality, Jack the Ripper was just a little part of day-to-day life during the period of the crimes. There was policing that had to be done. There were other crimes that had to be chased up, you know, other bodies to, to capture, so to speak. And also the, the regular policing, you know, the, the keeping the streets clear of obstructions, and the moving on of Costa boys, you know, so on and so forth. So um, I really wanted to kind of cover everything and, and get the murders in perspective for the um, every, everyday Bobby, really. What was the, the most interesting thing that you think that your book conveys about the life of the average Bobby? Ooh, good question. 
I think I think it it opens a, a lot of people's eyes into what they actually did and the complexities of, of the daily routine um, and also what it took to be a policeman as well. You know, they didn't just accept anybody and there were certain requirements that had to be met and, you know, there's certain rigours of the job that had to be, you know, uh, with, with, with stood really. So um, I think it, it kind of like, well, hopefully it, it, it um, a lot, opened a lot of people's eyes into that aspect of there's more going on. Uh, than what we read in regular Jack the Ripper books. Uh, what were the police looking for in a recruit, say around 1888, around the time of the Ripper? Basically, you had to be a physically fit, able guy. Um, there was a height regulation of five foot nine. The height regulation kind of fluctuates throughout the Victorian period, and in fact, throughout the whole um, the whole lifetime of the Metropolitan Police, really. But really, it was, it was five foot nine. Um, because they wanted physical imposing uh, men. You had to be fit as well in terms of... They didn't really accept recruits from the city because city life tended to lead to poor diet and obviously the industrialisations of, of the city, poor health. So they liked their, their men to be physically fit and able and that, that's basically country lads. Again, because of the rigours of, of constant beat work and the physical demands... They kind of took on guys who were either ex-military, so used to army life, or ex-labourers, um, agricultural labourers. They're the two main source groups that they recruited from. Was there a literacy requirement? The, did they have to be literate? And you know, could, yeah. They had, did they have to have a certain level of schooling? You know, did they have to require yeah. to do math or you know things of that nature? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, when when they joined, they, there was various stages that they had to go through. One was the physical test. The, doc, the divisional surgeon will, will check their health out. But the other one was the basically it's the reading, writing, and arithmetic test. Um, they would um, have to read passages from a, a candidate's book. They'd do simple, basic math sums on this examination. Basically, they'd copy down a um, excerpt either from a book or from a newspaper in their handwriting test. Um, so yeah, there was a basic degree of education required to do the job. If you couldn't do, do that, then, then you wouldn't pass on to the next stage, which would be the, the schooling. Now, I remember reading in your book that um, I believe it was a man named George Rose who trained most of the recruits over about a 40-year period beginning in the 1860s and leading into the early 1900s. And, you know, how long did that training last? Like, like if, if you went to see, if you, if you went to, like, where were you sent to, and and what did you actually have to go to? How long did it actually take to become a policeman? Yeah, I mean, I mean essentially there were kind of three phases you had to go through before you, you basically called yourself, you could call yourself a constable. The first phase is the application, and um, where you would apply to, to the either Met or City of London Police on an application form. You put down two referees' uh, names and details on the forms. Usually they're, they're either... One would be the, your former employer, and the other one is somebody of, of good standing in your neighbourhood, be it a uh, priest, vicar, rabbi, teacher, so on and so forth. And then what, what you do is you send your application form off, and then the, the we'll, we'll go with the Metropolitan Police. The Metropolitan Police will review the application and invite you to attend the um, what's called a Candidates' Day, which is basically what I've just explained this, where you get physically examined by the doctor and you go through your examinations of reading, writing and arithmetic. Once you've passed that stage, again, the Metropolitan Police will write to you 
and then they'll invite you um, to attend what's called preparatory school. Now, this is where the training begins. Essentially, if you pass this stage, you're, you're in, in the police. Um, preparatory school usually lasted about three weeks. What would happen is that the candidates would um, be based at um, uh, a section house in Kennington Lane, Kennington Lane Section House, under the said Robert Spector Rose. Um, they go through various parts of training, predominantly drill training, which is marching. Now, the marching would take place at um, Wellington Barracks. Um, they shared that with the Army, the Metropolitan Police. And the other part of training would actually be undertook at um, Scotland Yard. And that would be predominantly lectures. There'd be five lectures over the five or six lectures. I can't remember the exact number now. But over the um, three-week period to do with various things, law, first aid training, anatomy, so on and so forth. Once you've got through that stage, you would then um, do your final pass out stage, your final march past the chief constable, who was at whoever was available at the time and if you're you 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 pass that then um you go to the final part which is called the attestation which is where one would swear the oath um and um all that's left then is to be assigned into a division and off the young constable starts on his career and you you write in your book about um the section houses that they lived in which i think most people would blow their mind today that you know police of the day were sort of warehoused, in my opinion. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Brian from Buffalo, has, has written in with a couple of questions uh, regarding um, the living arrangements. And would they live in their section houses in the same area that they patrolled? Did the officers live there as well as the general bobbies? And, uh, and sort of like the functioning of how that would work. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, you've got three types of, uh, we'll say, living uh, accommodation uh, within the police. You've got your, it's called a station house, which is basically a, a accommodation attached to a police station. And that, depending on the size of the police station, it can hold between 15 to 30 to 60 men. But basically, it's like dormitories. Um, so you'll have your beds in, in one long dormantry uh, where the constables would sleep. Now usually predominantly for those it would be, well I'd say 80-90% would be um, single men and that they would live in section houses. However sergeants and inspectors were allowed to live in section houses in their own quarters uh, away from the rest of the men in um, married quarters so they could have their wives and, ch- and children living in the same station. With, with the constables, but separately, if you follow my meaning. Now, the, the other type of uh, housing um, would be what's called a section house. Now, the difference between a station house and a section house is that the section house is not attached to a police station. It is literally a house on its own in a road entirely occupied by constables, single men. Again, that can hold up to about 50. It, again, it depends on the size of the house, but it can hold up to about 50 to 100 constables. And that's overseen by what's called a section house sergeant. He is he, he is the head honcho, the daddy of, of all the policemen there. Um, there. There would be um, housemaids in these section houses and station houses. Um, not all of them, but there would be the odd one having a housemaid and also a cook and um, and they would basically tend to the to the men's needs in terms of food and cleaning the the rooms up, and the laundry and so on and so forth. And 
the final um, accommodation is predominantly um, to do with um, married men. Um, constables who are married and had two or three children were allowed to um, reside in police-owned houses dotted throughout the division. Um, they weren't; these houses weren't uh, permitted to be in uh, slum areas. They had to be in fairly well-to-do areas within the division. And predominantly, what they would do, the police would would buy up three or four or, or rent up three or four of these properties together. So you've got a row of, of policemen um, and their families all living together to support each other. It was, you know, the kind of like built camaraderie in, in one aspect. So, yeah, they would predominantly live all together. Um, uh, so they're, they're the three types. Now, policemen were allowed to live outside of their division. I know the city police, you had to reside within the boundaries of the City of London. If you're a city police constable, you couldn't live, out, say, out in Whitechapel or out in Islington Way. You had to live within the city. However, that was abolished, I think, around about 1890, and they were permitted to live outside the city boundaries. The Metropolitan Police weren't so strict with their ruling. Um, you could live outside your division, but not far away. You had to be in reasonable distance of the police station in case of emergencies. So, I mean, whether it be cycling distance or, or walking distance, constables were allowed to use um, the tram and bus system, and they did have some of them did have free passes uh, on there. But predominantly, it's, like I say, it's within a, an hour's hour and a half walking distance is, is usually the general rule of thumb of distance between station and where, where you live. All right, thank you. Are there any more comments about just sort of like the general recruitment and housing of officers? Um, well, I was going to say, uh, uh, with regards to section housing, the re- reason they had the men together in section housing and stuff is, is mustering. For example, if, if a riot occurred in certain areas, let's take the, the Bloody Sunday riots in Trafalgar Square in 1887, I can guarantee that a lot of men that were drawn into to protect the square and the people in the square um, from from the policing side were, would have been stationed in section houses and it's just for easy mustering it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get the men together than send runners out to individual houses of, of constables so if, in terms of gathering and in emergency situations this is the reason why section houses existed really because of course i believe as you've said in a previous podcast it wasn't like you know there weren't telephones and internet that, right. you know you had to have the police yeah. available in a quick emergency. Absolutely, it's a lot easier. I mean, you could send runners out. There were runners. They they used to commandeer boot blacks, um, kids that used to shine shoes on street corners, and they did have messengers and, and you know, post office messengers that they could commandeer and send out um, uh, with messages. But it was a lot easier to get a group of men together. And what would happen is, in such situations, the section house sergeant would actually stand at the front door and blow his whistle and all the men would muster, would, would gather together. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot easier than, than sending out messages. Um, I was going to ask, Neil, a couple of years ago, um, you wrote an article, so, so let's start, start nearer the present day. So in your book, you publish a, a photograph of um, Dr. Gordon Brown. Yes which is the first photograph published of Dr. Gordon Brown, I think. And a few years ago, you wrote an article with Rob Plack, I think, where you thought you had a picture of Gordon Brown then, and that was a station house, right? I, so where, I would say it was, yeah. It, sorry. Where, what, 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 what do you think about your identification of Gordon Brown at that time in that photograph? 
have you changed your mind about that or very much so yeah yeah um looking at that photo that photo is of um, more lane um station which did have a section house it's a city of london police station that would be um essentially it's a guy in, in his apron piece if anybody's not seen it who i think reasonably so i might add uh, matches uh the a sketch of gordon brown i can't remember which newspaper it's in um, but it kind of matches a sketch of gordon brown however the problem we had was looking at the medals it was probably around about 1890 uh, 97 um when the, the jubilee was occurring and i can't remember if it's silver it must have been the golden jubilee 97 of course it would be so yeah um so we felt it was Gordon Brown. However, in our defence, we never said it was definitely Gordon Brown. Um, however, we do feel. However, now the photos came out, and also the, from that photo, we, we managed to, uh, to identify um, Gordon Brown actually conducting a medical examination. It's in the um, Hargrave Adam um, books. I would say that the Gordon Brown in the original Morlane photo that we said was Gordon Brown isn't Gordon Brown and is in fact as he said and as Stuart Evans stated and Don Rumbelow a um, section house cook possibly I mean what would also happen in section houses is that even though I mentioned that there were female um, housekeepers and cooks and so on um, some stations and, and this happened a lot in the city of London police they did not employ females um, to, to do that sort of thing so what would happen is the guys would get together and basically vote uh, what was a, called a caterer or a team of caterers in for that month. So these guys, or it'd be about three or four of them, it would be their responsibility to basically keep keep the section house clean, to cook the food as well as purchase the goods to be eaten. Um, and they would wear the aprons and they would basically conduct all the housekeeping duties for that month. And then the next month there'd be another vote and another lot of lads will come in and do the job. So going back to your original question though, Mark, no, I don't think it's Gordon Brown in that photo. I think it is indeed either a section house sergeant or a section house caterer with Moorlane Police Station. Okay, thanks. No problem. One of the things that I was struck by um, in, in reading your book is that there are a lot of modern parallels to problems that the police force faces today that you don't really think about it, but it, they were equally the problem back in the day. Uh, one of the things that I, you know, I'm from Miami originally, and you were talking about in your book that the police in London had a lot of foreigners and a lot of immigrants, and the police were hampered mm. by not being able to speak to uh, some of the, you know, they needed translators. They didn't have translators for, for you know, it wasn't, I mean, translators wasn't, I don't think it was a huge industry back then in Whitechapel, uh, London, mm. and, and, you know, different things like the corruption and the payoffs and sort of all of that kind of thing, and also just how, I know today, as I've said before, my father was a police officer, how that the, the sort of the internal politics of policing, yeah. uh, the sort mm. of top down approach kind of hampered a lot of the in, of, of investigations. And I was just sort of I was very much struck reading your book by some of those things. You could absolutely transport them right out of the page of your book in 1880 and throw them into a police manual today and they would be absolutely the same problems with absolutely the same effects of sort of policing being hampered by politics and lack of translators and all of that kind of thing well and yeah. I'll just just to follow up on that before Neil answers um, 
you know, I was struck by some of the parallels as well, like with uh, modern policing and Jack the Ripper in terms of uh, even things like time wasting. Um, you know, the police having to follow up leads like in letters or, you know, citizens trying to be helpful, but really they're wasting valuable police time. And that you see that in modern investigations, you know, um, as well. Absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, not a lot of, has changed in terms of people and the way people are. I don't think there's, even though it was 126 odd years, there's, um, there's a curve between the murders and today. Um, there's not a lot of difference in, in the way people behave and, and, you know, I mean, you go back to actually the area itself, Whitechapel itself. I mean, predominantly during 1888 was a Jewish area pockets of Irish in there and various other nationalities, but like I say, chiefly Jewish. Today we're looking at uh, Bangladeshis and, and in between time, you know, we've, we've, you know, there's been various different kind of cultures and, and um, people, nationalities in between. Um, going back to the um, interpretation, um, yeah, I mean, I do find that slightly odd. I mean, that research kind of came on from the MIPO files at um, at Kew, the National Archives, and there was a report that was actually um, written by Donald Swanson in the mid-1890s regarding this issue of um, interpreters, and chiefly it was to do with interpreters at courts, not so much in the police stations. However, they did send out um, requests to each and every subdivision station throughout the Metropolitan Police asking them, you know, how many um, times did you re- request an interpreter for interviewing a suspect, so on and so forth. Um, and I, I was quite shocked in an area as, as such as Whitechapel that they stated that they did not have any official interpreters, Hebrew interpreters. Now I suspect, because I know that there was a fair few um, Jewish policemen, that they did the interpreting for them. Um, and but a lot of problems they had was actually to do with handbills. Um, whilst some constables learnt a little bit of Hebrew, there wasn't many that actually could read Hebrew. And I do find that when I, when I was working on investigations, and I come from Leicester, and it's predominantly Asian, Indian um, people I deal with. Um, but I could actually speak a bit of Urdu, a bit of Gujarati, no problem, but I could not read it. And I think it's a similar sort of situation in 1888 with the policemen and with the Jewish aspect of it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I do not see a lot of difference between policing today. I think today that obviously people, are, uh, policemen are more considerate of, of ethnic backgrounds, and in order not to to offend, they'll they'll toe the line within reason. But obviously, there is still a law to to, to upkeep. And at this stage, I have to admit there was something I was going to say that I've completely forgotten. It was very relevant, but I'm sure you could cut that bit out, Alice. <laughs> no, if I don't get to cut my mistakes out and leave them in, I'm going to... Well, I, I do find it interesting because listening to you, you know, I was an interpreter um, for several years, um, not, uh, well, for sign language uh, deaf clients. And when you're talking about, you know, using a police officer to interpret for uh, another person, it's so hilarious because in my mind, there, you know, there's a joke where a deaf guy has committed a crime and he's stolen some money. There's various versions, and in some the mob guys come to get the money back, and in some he's arrested by the police. And there's an interpreter with them, and you know the interpreter, and they're telling him, you know, where's the money? If you tell us, we'll go easy on you. And so the deaf guy's like, oh, okay, okay, and he tells them where the money is. 
and the interpreter turns to either the mob who's going to kill the deaf guy or the police who are going to harshly punish the deaf guy and goes, I'll never tell you where the money is. Do your worst. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of like the general rule of dealing with interpreters is how much can you trust them? And you look at that, of course, the interpreter goes and steals the money because nobody knows what was being said. Um, and so when you're doing that, I have this joke running in my mind. It would actually have been more funny if I'd actually done the joke instead of just trying to explain it. But, you know, it, it, because that's such a no-no to interpret for, you know, the police has all the power in that situation and, and they're interpreting. So I'm just wondering how many uh, confessions uh, were gathered that way in general speaking kind of kind of a sense. It's just interesting to I think well, that. I'm, I'm, I know exactly what you mean because I've done it. I've done a few interviews under caution where we've had interpreters in, and um, you'll ask a question, and then the interpreter has to translate it into, let's say, Gujarati. So he translates it into Gujarati, and the person sits there, comes out with a fifteen, twenty, thirty second response, to which the interpreter then comes back. He says no, <laughs> just as yeah. simple. He says no. And you're like, no, he didn't. He, he actually, he, I, I could tell that he was actually engaging in the conversation, or he was elaborating, I should say, on what he's saying. Um, I mean, going back into 1888, I've just remember what I said, um, what I was going to say, actually. Yeah, there was an issue. I mean, it all came to head with regards to interpreters. Um, I think, I can't remember which division now. I think it was S Division or T Division. But basically, there was a guy that was uh, arrested for an offence. Um, he was a German-speaking man, and they sent for an interpreter. And the interpreters at the time, they, they, they were privateers. They, they weren't assigned to a police, they, uh, a police um, division. They were very much their own guys, but they had a reliable source of men that they went to for interpreting. So they called the interpreter out. The interpreter got there only to be told that his services wasn't required because the station sergeant was actually half German and spoke German, and therefore he would conduct the interpretation. The problem with that is that the Met Police still had to pay the interpreter for his expenses of travelling all the way over to the station, um, but also the fact that these, the station sergeant who was doing the interpreting then took the interpreter's freeze. So basically he took his wage from the interpreter. So this is how it all came to a head. Oh yeah, uh, that's a big no-no. Even today, yeah. that's a big no-no. Absolutely. So, so the interpreter complained to the Metropolitan Police. They investigated it and they basically agreed upon a uh, one company to do all the interpreting uh, for them, both at police courts and at police stations. So, yeah, that's that's how it all came to a head with regards to interpreters. But yeah, I mean, you you got to bear in mind they're police. They're also police in an area, as you said. It's got a, a it's a cauldron of different cultures, people, and so on and so forth. But, uh, um, a lot of people who lived in the Whitechapel area and, and surrounds were escaping the pogroms um, from Eastern Europe. So they come over to the United Kingdom, and of course, the very people that they're kind of running away from, they see it in the policemen of Whitechapel. They, they cannot differentiate between the two. So they see the, peop- the police of the Whitechapel as authority figures, and back in their homeland, these authority figures would take their families away, they would take their brothers and cousins, and you, they'd never see them again. So there's a lot of suspicion of policemen within the Jewish community, and, and to, to a degree that's very similar today um, with, with certain people. And again, I mean, on the flip side is, is uh, and I mentioned this in the book, is the, the Irish communities. The Irish saw the police as representatives of the authority, of, of, the, of the royal crown. And of course, what happened in Ireland um, 
well, what was it, about 40, 50 odd years prior to the Whitechapel murders and, and the Irish famine and the taking of the land and so on and so forth. Um, the police were treated uh, with, with much disdain by many um, Irishmen, men and women uh, living in Whitechapel. So you get these little communities, these little groups of people who treat police in different ways, but ultimately are very suspicious of them. Neil, do you think that um, the Whitechapel, the investigation into the Whitechapel murders was held back because of public distrust of the police? Oh, that's a good question, Mark, because I don't, um, and, I, and I'll explain why. Um, obviously, the, the, with, uh, during the murders, there was a killer at loose. It was not, I mean, let's look at it from a business aspect, which is very callous, but uh, it's a reality. Um, a serial killer walking the streets was very bad for business. So, I mean, we go, we turn, kind of turn to Lusk and the setting up of the vigilance committees who supported the police. So we've got that aspect. But also the criminal underworld. I, I, I think um, it was pretty much bad business for them to have a serial, because of a serial killer working in that area. Um, simply because um, criminals do not like anything that upsets the, the balance, as it were, and draws in more policemen. And obviously, with Jack the Ripper roaming around Whitechapel at the time, um, Warren drafted in a lot of uh, spare policemen from other divisions into, into the area, um, which meant, obviously, a massive increase in police presence. And for, for your bog-standard burglar, that was not a good thing. Um, so I think there was a, 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 a lot of cooperation, more, more cooperation than there would usually be for a, a pe- petty criminal or, or a gangland kind of uh, criminal. Um, so I think there was actually, I think it's more of a flip side. I think it, they, they were very helpful. Um, the problem they got is that there was obviously a frustration, I think, um, from the people of Whitechapel um, with regards to the fact that the killer wasn't caught and they needed somebody to blame, and it was easy to blame the police. And we see this in press reports as well, in letters to, to the editors of, of newspapers, where they absolutely slate the police. And we even get um, policemen from, from the States as well, um, Inspector Byrne of the New York Police Department, who absolutely rips into... He absolutely um, criticises... Um, to Charles Warren and the way he is de- dealing with the Whitechapel murders, but uh, there was there was also a letter I believe from a gentleman who worked for I think it was either for the Whitechapel Board of Works or something like that, some council type of person who was basically criticising Warren and the way he was operating and, and um, saying he should be doing this, he should be doing that, and Warren responded. It was an open letter in a newspaper I had. Warren responded likewise. Well, yes, that's very well, well and good, you know, but I haven't got the men. You've got to realise that Whitechapel still needs to be policed. There are still criminals going around. There's still, you know, beggars that need to be moved on. There's still prostitutes operating in the area. We, we still need to police this area as well as capture a serial killer. Uh, and, you know, as, as today, with, with today's police in the cuts that the police are facing today, Warren was stretched to the limit with regards to men and, and finances. Um, Neil, the... Uh, the police all, as you said, were under financial crunch for almost everything. They had to account to home office, it seemed like, for you know every pencil. But another thing that I think hindered the investigation, and you covered in your book, is the fact that you know Whitechapel was the most populous district, you know, in the most populous city in the world at the time. You know, with seventy-six thousand residents, 
yet there was very few police actually in the neighborhood um, to police it. And even with the extra patrols brought in, they still seemed like they were undermanned compared to, you know, other parts of the metropolis. Yeah, I mean, as you say, what was it, the population was 76,000 people residing in Whitechapel at the time. And the strength of men, I think, was, was it the 1st of September, was something like 548 on the 1st of September, 1888. Uh, so you've got roughly about 550 men police in that area. You've also got to bear in mind, out of that 550 men, half of them will be, or I should say, one third of them will be asleep, while the other two thirds will be out on patrol, and vice versa. So, you know, not all of them will be all out at the same time. So, you know... Um, there were, there were, as, as Warren, uh, the, the fact that Warren brought in men, we, we, he kind of, try, he was trying to cover two, two, two things here. First of all, he wanted a speedy resolution to these crimes. He wanted the killer court rapidly. So therefore, he set, he sent a lot of men out to do, help free up constables who would in turn help the detectives with their inquiries. So there's that aspect, but also a physical presence on the streets as well. You know, he increased um, beats, um, numbers of men on beats in certain areas as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, he was stretched to the limit. Um, the Home Office did try and help. I mean, there were funds that were diverted um, and kind of poured into Whitehall so he could hire the men. But, yeah, it, it was a very... It, you, it's a dense, densely populated area. It's a warren of streets and alleyways and so on and so forth. There's empty houses, there's full houses, there's derelict houses, and there's people hustle and bustle. It's the main thoroughfare for the east of London, you know, through to the city. So from Kent and the ports at Chatham and so on and so forth. So there'll be trade piling through. You've also got the docks to the south, so you've got sailors coming in from all sorts of ports from all over the world. You know, the transient nature of Whitechapel itself was, is quite staggering when compared to other divisions in the area. I mean, obviously, there, there, there were, you know, similar sort of um, happenings going on in, in K Division in, in, in um, West Ham, both. This K division, you know, they're, they're pretty close to the docks, but nothing seemingly quite as much as Whitechapel. It was, you know, it was a right den of, of um, thieves, criminals, you know, those seeking the pleasures, you know, and the the opium dens and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of things going on that really would stretch the resources of regular policing. Then you add on a serial killer on top of it, and it's it's just blows up. It just goes manic. And you can you can actually see this, and you can see kind of the way. Scotland Yard kind of manage this with the first few murders you know they're, they're taken as, as terrible as it sounds as, as regular murders and then they get Nichols who's murdered um, just a couple of weeks after Tabram and you can they send down um, Inspector Aberline from Central Office so that's the kind of first inkling that Scotland Yard are getting interested there's a bit of concern here then obviously with the Chapman murder happening just a week after Polly Nichols' murder, things really do kick off and you can see that with Swanson being appointed um, a few days after that, you know, it's, it's, um, there was a genuine concern in, um, with regards to uh, central office and the, those in the higher echelons of Scotland Yard of what was happening. Whether it was too little, too late, we, 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 obviously it was because there were further murders occurred after that. 
but yeah, um, they did try and stem the flow, shall we say, but obviously they, they weren't successful. One of the things that I was struck by in reading your book is this this whole idea of why didn't the police catch them? And and I'm a person, and I'm sure most people who study true crime are aware of how difficult it is to catch a serial killer, even in modern day, with um, all of the technological advances that we currently have. But I, I'm from an American country, which is pristine and clean, and so, you know, you guys are from the UK, and it didn't really hit me until I was reading, there's a part in your book um, where it's talking about a, lever, a letter from a Reverend Barnett, where he's advocating removing the slaughterhouses in Whitechapel, because in, in our heads, when we're reading about these gruesome murders and we're imagining this blood-stained killer roaming the streets of Whitechapel, how could he possibly not be caught? He didn't have a car to hide in. He didn't whatever. And, and it wasn't until I was reading this little passage where he's talking about how people are accustomed to seeing blood-stained people walk up and down the streets because the slaughterhouses are in the district. And it's not mm. like they had a change of clothes. You know, like in modern day, you put on your coverall, you get that blood stained. You put on regular clothes to leave and go. You know what I mean? It wasn't the same back then. They didn't have the same thing. So they're accustomed to seeing blood stained people walking up and down the meat market or walking up and down the slaughterhouse districts. And so I'm kind of thinking, well, okay, that makes more sense now as to how easily he could have blended in. Uh, when I'd never really, like, I'd thought about it, but I'd never really contemplated that before. Like, I know Whitechapel wasn't as pristine as we're accustomed to nowadays, but it would have been very easy for him to just sort of blend in. He's a regular slaughterhouse guy going about to his work, even if he was covered in blood, which he may not have been depending upon whether he strangled him first or whatever. But, um, so it was just interesting to me because I think it, your book really did give a better picture of the challenges facing the police because, you know, we sort of look at it from our 2015 perspective mm. of of how, what, how and when you sort of start getting into the nitty gritty of it, um, just how few police officers there were, the general environment in which they were. I, I would have been amazed if they caught anybody back then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Yeah, it's one of my biggest um, pet hates of, of the case and the, the, those that study the case today is they take a modern perspective on a 1888 um, serial killer and policing of that um, serial killer um, without actually kind of like taking into account the various factors that are going on at the same time. I mean, you pointed out the slaughterhouses. You've also got the markets that are setting up the meat markets as well. It's not just the blood that's, you know, oozing on the streets and probably over uh, the men as well, but also the smells, you know, they're a pretty ran- rancid stench, I could imagine, um, Whitechapel being at the time. Um, and as you pointed out, the very few policemen in the area, what do they do? Do they stop search everybody that's covered in blood? Do they, so, so you know, they, they, as well as conduct their own regular duties as well? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, various things, and it's, it seems to me a bit of a cop-out. It's a bit too easy to criticise the police of 1888. Not that many do. I think the majority kind of understand, understand that, that they were shackled a hell of a lot. Um, but some some do, do as well, especially those of the period. I mean, again, I mentioned earlier about the newspapers and the amount of criticising letters going off and the newspapers themselves, the radicals and that, who would pounce on the police at any given chance. Um, I think it's far too easy to criticise the police for the failure of capturing Jack. Essentially, is, is I can't remember which author pointed that out, but the, the, they're right. It's 
it really does boil down to um, a lot of circumstantial evidence that all is actually captured with, in the act of committing the crime, um, which is very, very unlikely. But yeah, there's there's a lot of factors going on that people really do need to consider, especially the social uh, factors. Again, we've mentioned markets and people coming and going, the orange market, the fruit market, the meat market as well. It's a very busy area that had to be policed by a handful of men. And then, like I said, to capture a serial killer on top of that, it, it's extremely difficult and you know, it's it's no wonder that they failed in that aspect, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to um, ask you about, um, because your book really does a, an interesting way of covering the murders that, that no other book does, and it starts from really the initial policeman um, hearing about it mm. or discovering the body, and then you take yeah. the case actually from there, whether it's PC Neal, you know, discovering Nichols and Bucks Row, or, or whether mm. it's... Um, P.C. Lamb being told about uh, the Stride murder in, in Dutfield's yard and yeah. Burner Street. And then, yeah. and then you take the investigation from there, which, which is a very yeah. fascinating way of looking at the case because, you know, all, all of the other books, you know, they, they take it really from the point of the victim up until their murder and then they take it from the investigation from there. But you actually take it from when the police um, actually discover the crime, which people can read for themselves and you know, and they should. But what I really would like to know, and because this ties into your book, is that, you know, say like me, myself, I'm a cop on the beat. PC McLaughlin is on the beat. And I come across um, a body. Like, really, I think it's important to know, like, I think a lot of the listeners would want to know, like, what is the protocol? Um, I've, I'm yeah. going across my regular beat. I discover this body. Um, what happens? Yeah. Like, who do I contact? Like, I, I don't have a phone. Mm. I don't, I don't I, all I've got is a whistle and a lamp. Like, if, yeah. And um, that's about it. So um, maybe you yeah. could take us, maybe you could take us through that, like, like that initial part of the investigation, like w- when a body was discovered. Yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly what I wanted to do with the book. I mean, you know, I didn't want it to be no, no criticism, any, any author out there, but a, a rehash of the events um, as seen through newspaper reports and police reports, blah, blah, blah. Um, I wanted it to actually put the reader um, in the eyes of, of a policeman, uh, so to speak, and I wanted to kind of explain a few protocols and procedures because it seemed to me, whether it be reading other books or going on Casebook or um, Hal Brown's site, the forums, um, there's a lot of, and it's, again, no disrespect to people out there because I was, you know, the same thing happened to me. There was a lot of ignorance regarding police procedure. Um, it wasn't really explained in any Jack the Ripper book. Um, we just get told that they please did this, but we're not really told why did they do that? Why did they react like that? You know. Um, so it, I found that kind of aspect fascinating. Um, I, I did. So too, yeah, I mean, like when somebody showed yeah. up like, on a murder scene, like like I wondered, well, how did they get to the murder scene? Like, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I understand like somebody was called for a doctor, but like, you know, how did yeah. a sergeant happen to get there or an inspector or yeah, like, you right. know, who yeah. who went to fetch them? Like, because yeah. you know, yeah, your book was Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the yeah. Uh, that's it. That's it. You all sudden these names appear, and you're like, well, how did the, how did how did they become aware of this? Um, basically, the procedure, and it's, it's in the police code, which um, um, is basically the, the policeman's Bible. It gives instructions on what to do in certain scenarios and situations, um, gives advice. Uh, but when a, when a dead body's found, the, the first thing a policeman must do is, is essentially contact the divisional surgeon, which... 
being the division surgeon is here, there and everywhere and could be at the other end of the division, it, it's not always practical when life and death is around. So what they would do is, and it's again in the police code, is contact the nearest available surgeon. And it was the beat constable's duty to be aware of who the doctors were and where they were located on his beat. So he would actually send either uh, a brother constable if they were around or any member of the public who's passing uh, to fetch the nearest doctor. It was, I mean, I don't know if people are aware, it still stands today, but if a constable, a policeman asks you for help, you cannot turn them down. You must, it is your duty, as a, um, a public duty, I should say, to actually aid a policeman in times of emergency. So you must follow their instruction. And it was the same in 1888. So they get the doctor, and the first thing that the doctor would do is to establish if it's, um, if the life is savable, if they could save this person's life, or if they're deceased. If they could save the life, then they would transport them either to the nearest um, hospital or doctor's surgery or conduct whatever they need to do in the street. Obviously, if the person is deceased, then it is up to the doctor to declare that person is dead and the time that they felt that they'd, they'd died or, or they've, they declared it as the, the person is dead. Um, now, whilst this is happening, whilst he's waiting for the uh, doctor to uh, arrive, the, the constable would actually be examining the body, looking at the clothing, looking at wounds, blood marks. So if I'm making a description, he should be making this description in his pocketbook, his little notebook. Um, and he'd also be checking the signs uh, of, of disturbance around the body, whether it be footprints, splatters on the wall so on and so forth and we actually see this with Watkins and also um, PC Neil who's actually making an assessment of the scene he would also try and um, contact his local or I should say his closest colleague either by blowing his whistle or by sending uh, a runner uh, a member of the public or by signalling with his lamp, again we see that with PC Neil, what he would then do is the first policeman to aid the the constable on the scene would then be sent to um, the nearest police station for basically the the uh, duty inspector. Now the duty inspector is, is an interesting in this scenario is an interesting character because he is the link between the uniformed men and the CID, the guys who are actually going to be investigating the crime. So he thinks like a CID man would think. So once he arrives on the scene, he will try and secure the area, keep people back. And again, we see this in the City of London Police with Inspector Collard. He sealed off Mitre Square and to keep people out. And he'd ask his constables to conduct searches of the square, you know, again, let's just use Mitre Square, the empty houses at the back there behind uh, Eddowes' body. Um, so he'd, he'd, he'd basically try and gather as much evidence as he could, he'd be looking for murder weapons, bloodstained clothing, that sort of thing. Obviously then, as part of the procedure, um, local CRD would be notified that their woman's body had been found. So they would send their office. Now, usually it would be the local inspector, the head of CRD, um, who would arrive at the scene uh, and basically take over from the um, duty inspector. And they conduct their inquiries and so on and so forth. Um, we see in the Whitechapel murders that uh, not a lot of these procedures on occasion um, was adhered to. But there are there are good reasons why this didn't happen. And again, we go back to Polly Nichols. Um, 
Dr Llewellyn's um, request that the body be removed. Really, it shouldn't have been removed until CID had arrived on the scene, um, but it was removed and taken off to the mortuary. Now, one can actually understand Llewellyn's um, concern here. He's got a dead body in the street. There's nothing he could do to help the woman. Crowds are beginning to gather, and that area had to be policed. So it was better to take the body away from the scene, and the crowds would disperse, and it would be a lot easier to police. But, you know, these, these guidances were not written in stone, and obviously, especially in the early, early part of the, the murders, you do find that the policemen kind of did not realise what was expected of them, what they should be doing. Yeah, that's actually um, interesting because they, they prioritized crowd control over crime scene preservation, which I guess from, you know, again, our 2015 forensics yeah. perspectives, we're going, oh, my gosh, you didn't just do that. But what else really were they to do? You have two people to control. Yeah, I mean, all, all, people. All, they could, all they could really gather from, from the scene of crimes is footprints around the body. Uh, and blood splatters. We do know that um, they actually took a sample of um, Francis Cox, what's deemed the best in, in the Whitechapel murder series, took blood samples from her body to determine if she'd taken drugs and so on and so forth. Um, so you, you kind of see a little bit of progression regarding forensics um, from the policing point of view. Um, but as you say, there's not a lot that could really gain from the crime scene itself. They'd, they'd probably gain a lot more information from the body in terms of, you know, cuts and wounds and direction of cuts and so on and so forth. Medical knowledge, even though that's still being debated to this day. Um, but actually at the scene, it was a case of clear it up as quick as we can. You know, because, like I say, it, was, it took men off the streets to, to actually police big crowds. There's very little to be gained at a crime scene for the Victorian policeman. Um... Going back to what you were talking about earlier, like uh, with station houses, um, for, for let's say the the Mary Kelly murder in Dorset Street, would would they have uh, called um, in extra policemen, like to because they closed off, of course, the court and um, yeah, you know, I think uh, they they were controlling the crowds in Dorset Street. Well, the interesting aspect of uh, Mary Kelly's murder is the fact that they actually had a lot of reserve men in. Commercial Street Police Station because as we all are aware, those that study the case it was actually the day of the Lord Mayor's show so there's a lot of uh, men who are actually stationed at the station house um, already but yeah, they, 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 it was it was a lot easier for obviously for that because it, uh, that murder because of um, proximity, uh, yeah, it was just so close yeah, it's only just up the road um, what would happen um, um, with regards to Kelly and Really, it happened, also happened with Eddowes, is that um, once the station had actually received news of a murder, they would actually send out telegrams um, spreading out across the, all districts regarding that a murder had occurred. And um, we do actually find in the, in the police orders, it was something that Rob Clack and I discovered, um, there is actually a notice, even though it's been reported in various newspapers, the Whitechapel again notice, which is a fascinating um, police order. Essentially what happened was that um, if a station had been notified of the murder, they would send out a telegram to all other stations with the words simply stating Whitechapel again. Now those stations that received that message, Whitechapel again, were to assume that there had been another murder in Whitechapel. They would then send out messages to their various subdivision stations, but not only that, they would send out runners and reserve constables to the guys who were on the beat, basically stating Whitechapel again. 
Now, the guys who are on the beat will then be aware that a, uh, a murder had just occurred and that a killer was out on, on, out on the loose. And they would then step up their vigilance during their beat. So they would stop search anybody of suspicion. Um, so, you, you know, so word did kind of spread, even though they, it wasn't an age of, you know, texts and internet and so on and so forth. They still had their ways of kind of spreading information as swiftly as they could. So, yeah, I mean, basically, it's it was very difficult for the police at the time in terms of a murder occurring and, and you know, how to respond to that. However, that said, they did have their plans to deal with it. Um, just changing tack briefly, um, Neil, um, because I can't remember if it was covered in your book or not. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it was, but um, the police relationship with the press... Now, I know, like, if you were a senior police officer at Scotland Yard, you had to run something past um, home office if you wanted to get it published, for example. But I was wondering, like, on the Bobby on the beat, um, like, what was his uh, – what could he say and not say to the press? Like, could could I, as a journalist, come up and talk to him? And what, what would he be allowed to tell me or not tell me? Uh, there's a difference between him being allowed and making an unofficial comment. Right. <laughs> Yeah, um, the, the the rules and regulations state that the policemen should not speak to the police. Full stop. Howard Vincent mentions this in the police code. Um, you do not speak to the press. You, you do not really reveal anything regarding an investigation at all. If you did so, then you you would be so, uh, severely disciplined. Um, however, it obviously did occur. You know, this, this slipping of a, a a shilling or whatever the numerical price would be to buy Bobby's. Um, confidence would be made and, and the PC would kind of reveal things that he shouldn't reveal and we see this in newspaper reports at the time however that said there was a recognition by the police of the use of the newspapers um, I think it kind of frustrated the newspapers a little bit because it was a case of one minute you want to use this the next minute you don't you know and obviously they need to sell sell issues but the, uh, the overall, the rule was that um, they, they weren't allowed to communicate with the police without permission from their senior officer. And again, it would be kind of restricted on what they were allowed to say. Certainly, they weren't allowed to reveal anything regarding an investigation. That would have to be done officially through press releases. Very similar to today, really. I mean, not a lot. Again, we go back to the old, you know, not a lot's changed. And it hasn't. And of course, if you said too much as a Bobby on the beat, even off the record, it would be easy to spot who you are. Your fellow, your fellow coppers oh, yeah. would probably easily spot you. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. It's very difficult to prove, you know, especially if the constable's name's kept out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we do get the odd snippets of information coming through from Watkins and Harvey and so on and so forth in the newspapers without revealing the name and Hut as well. Their names aren't revealed, but we kind of know that the press are referring to these guys and these guys, you know. You know, right. I saw a toping like a pig in a market, says the constable. We're not told the constable's name, but, you know, we, we, we are told, you know, what where the location is, as you pointed out. How were disciplinary infractions dealt with, typically? Well, usually, I mean, it, there's varying degrees of discipline. Um, it, You know, the most severest would be obviously a sacking in a custodial sentence and I think only one policeman's ever received that in the Metropolitan Police's lifetime and that was a Constable Cook I think it was in 1901 who actually committed a murder yeah. so he's actually hung 
for, for his crime. And so obviously that's the most heinous crime that um, a policeman could be uh, punished for. Um, the most common one was drunkenness. Uh, I think we've all read accounts of policemen being drunk on duty. Um, again, probably the most famous one connected to the Ripper cases, uh, Constable Long. However, looking at Long's career, it would seem that he'd been given enough chances. He, he's, he would be reprimanded, or he was reprimanded, I should say. In other words, uh, sorry, he was reprimanded by actually being um, declassified in his uh, classification. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but a constable has three classifications. He has third class, second class, and first class. He always starts off on third class. If he behaves himself for a year, he goes up to second class, and if he behaves himself and conducts himself very well, he goes up into first class. Once he becomes a first class constable, he's then eligible for promotion to sergeant, and the same thing happens to the sergeant ranks and the inspector ranks. Um, however, if he, he, he is, uh, commits an offence, a misdemeanour, of any kind, being drunk on duty, for example. There was various options open to them that he could forfeit a, few, uh, a day's leave or a couple of days' leave. He could lose that. He could be fined, um, docked part of his wage. He could be declassed and gone down from first class down to second class or even straight to third class again. Um, so there's various ways of dealing with punishment. He, again, it depends on the severity of the, the crime that is committed. That, 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 that's probably the most common lot is declassification and fining or loss of, of um, leave and pay. Do you know if anyone was uh, penalised, censured, fined, sanctioned, loss of rank due to any um, missteps over the Ripper case specifically? No. No, I don't. Um, I've not come across anything like that. There's no reference in police orders regarding the Ripper case and misdemeanors conducted by the police, as far as I'm aware. Not to say that there isn't. I can't see any. I've not found any. What did Victorian police um, do at the time, like the Met and the City of London, like to combat things like bribery and uh, corruption of, like the local copper on the beat? That was very hard. But again, um, if, if again, it's, it's all down to proof, Rob. Um, but um, if a constable was proven to to have committed, uh, well, well, to been bribed, I should say, then the most common reaction would be sacking. You'd be kicked off out, off the force. What would happen is when you when you actually left the police, you'd, you'd um, receive what's called a parchment, which is basically a letter of good conduct. But you can also receive a bad parchment, which is a, a letter outlining exactly um, what you did and why you left the police force. So if you try to gain employment from another employer, um, what they, that employer would do, very much similar to today, they would contact your previous employer as a referee, and that's what your conduct was like. And the police would actually hand over this parchment stating this person was bribed and that's the reason why they left the force, blah, blah, blah. So it would hamper your future career no matter where you went, which job you went into. So it's very rare for a policeman to, to find anything of, of worth if you're being open to bribery. So, you know, so whilst the rewards being bribed are, are obvious, there is a downside and, you know, it'd be very hard to find employment, it'd be very hard for people to trust you again. It's quite severe to be accused of bribery. Not to say that it didn't happen, because obviously it did happen. Well, there you go. So, actually, uh, Rob's question brought another question to my mind, which is about the level of cooperation between the Metropolitan Force and the City Force during the investigation into the Whitechapel murders, because this is something which um, I think gets brought up relatively frequently, the idea that they were 
um, unfriendly towards each other or uncooperative towards each other. And I, I don't. I mean, what's your what's your perspective about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've actually. I mean, let's bring it to a modern. Um, let's bring it up to the modern day. I've actually, when when conducting research into the book, I had dealings with both the city police and the metropolitan police. And I will state here and now that there is a rivalry between the two forces, naturally. Um, you know, that the, the city police would mock the Met and the Met would mock the city in my conversations between with the two, you know, organisations. However, they had a job to do. Um, and there is also a lot of evidence, and again, it's in the National Archives, if anybody cares to look, um, a lot of evidence of uh, cooperation, not just during the Ripper murders, but in general across the history of the two forces. There seems to be a recognition, um, and, and in a way, I guess, a reluctant admiration of the, of the one of the other um, regarding policing. At the end of the day, they're all brothers in arms. So, you know, if anything happens to a city policeman, it's felt on the Met side and vice versa. But going back to your question, I mean, obviously there was a liaison between uh, the city and, and the Met Police. Um, Swanson kind of instigated that or, or basically monitored that, I should say. Charles, so Charles One kind of instigated it with uh, Henry Smith, who was the head of the city police at the time. Um, and they would meet um, regularly, I do believe, weekly. Um, city, I can't remember his rank now, but uh, City Inspector Sagar, who was heavily involved in the Edo's case, um, would act as liaison. And they'd go over and meet at Old Jewelry, which is the um, city police headquarters, and some of the city policemen would go over to um, Scotland Yard and meet up. So, yeah, the, the, the liaison was, was good. I mean, obviously, they had a common goal, and that is to capture um, Jack the Ripper. Again, as I said, there was rivalry. You can't deny that. But I think the rivalry stopped when the job had to be done. And I think that's pretty clear in, in um, the um, archives and the records. Um, I mean, we get, we get, sorry, I was going to say, we get a lot of, I mean, in the build-up, um, there's, um, we get a lot of references. Um, what would happen is if a investigation was being conducted by the Met Police and the suspect was in the city jurisdiction and the city police, uh, sorry, the Met Police would send a letter, a courtesy letter over to the, to the city and say, basically, conducting this investigation, the suspect lives on your patch, can, Either you do the inquiries or are you happy for us to conduct the inquiries? And the city will respond back, yeah, we'll do this for you. Or no, you can go over and have a chat with them, blah, blah, blah. So there was regular communication on a daily basis with memos and emails. Oh, emails, listen to me. Yeah. Telegrams, I should, telegrams, I should say, going backwards and forwards. Victorian emails, right? Victorian emails, yeah, well, you know, it happens to, well, you know, it happens today. I'm sure it's emails today. But, um, you know. There's regular correspondence flying backwards and forwards between the two and, and liaison between the two. And it's not just, you know, city and Met. It's Met and other jurisdictions within the Metropolitan Police Force, other divisions as well, and uh, uh, across the country. Now, um, when when police actually had to actively uh, cross the boundary line, like, for example, um, when Eddowes was murdered in Mitre Square in the City of London territory, and um, you had men like Hulse and Marriott and others who were actively investigating in H Division, like in Metropolitan Territory. Um, I was wondering, um, you know, obviously they could do that. They could pursue that. But I was wondering if there were circumstances like perhaps petty crime or something where they couldn't do that. Like were there circumstances where they um, were not allowed to, you know, police on somebody else's patch? 
they couldn't actively go out. I mean, if a crime happened, let's take the city and the map. Yeah. If a city PC who was patrolling the border with the metropolitan PC, uh, sorry, with the metropolitan area, I should say, sees a crime taking a, cra- uh, a place across in that H division, he was not permitted to go over and make the arrest unless there is no PC around, obviously. So he, he, he could actually go over, because obviously a crime's a crime at the end of the day, you know, he, he would make, make the arrest over there. Um, but I heard stories from Don, Don Rumblow, which kind of tickled me, that um, if, if their arrest figures were fairly low in the city of police, who Don worked for, they would kind of venture across and try and find a few crimes occurring. And try and try and pick up uh, <laughs> a few scores on the doors, so, and then drag them back across the city. And I'm sure the same thing happened with H Division. Uh, at the end of the day, a crime, as I said, the crime's a crime. So if if a crime's being committed and there's no other PC around from from that rel- relative division, they would go across and make the arrest and vice versa. I know there is actually a story with Marriott. You mentioned Marriott earlier, Rob, who um, yeah. did investigations regarding Edo's of actually aiding a young um, H-Division constable. He was walking on the boundary, which is Houndsditch, between the city and the Met. Saw this young copper trying to wrestle with a, with a, a villain, not really getting anywhere. Really. So he ran across <laughs> and, try, try, and tried to help him. You know where I'm going with this one, don't you? And tried to um, help him out. So they make the arrest. Then all of a sudden, out of the, a, a street door further, further along, comes a second young man. Uh, a ruffian and assaults Marriott uh, in in hopes of helping his oppo, his friend, escape. He was unsuccessful. They still main, uh, kept hold of the original offender and they frog marched him back to Commercial Street Police Station. However, it seems that the guy that committed the second assault was well known to the police and he was arrested a few days later during a raid. And the guy's name, I can't remember his first name, but his um, surname was Lever, but he was known by the name of Hobnocker. It's really interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, uh, I actually looked up Hobnocker. Hobnocker Levy was his name. I actually uh, did some research. Couldn't really find anything on him. Seen some newspaper clippings regarding the assault. I then decided to look up Hobnocking um, in a Victorian dictionary. And uh, the term to hobnock is actually to kick, kick a man in the crutch. It so we sounded, can imagine. Yeah, it bad. Yeah, so we can imagine how how um, Detective Constable Marriott was assaulted by Mr. Lever. It would seem that he, he was hobnocked at the time, which rendered rend, rendered Mr. Marriott, uh, DC Marriott, I should say, incapable for a few moments before he regained his senses. Now, after Marriott helped escort the prisoner to Commercial Street Station, like, would Marriott have to fill out his report as well? Yes, he would. He would. And he'd he'd telegram it or he'd he'd send it over via courier over to, or messenger, I should say, over to the um, Commercial Street Police Station. And he would actually have to appear in court, and I think he did do regarding this one, um, if required. Um, what would happen is if a case went to court, the the, um, witnesses would be summoned. So he would have been summoned over. Of course, he would have actually appeared in a uh, Metropolitan Police Court, uh, Jurisdiction Court, um, which is fairly common, it, it, these things happen. Um, so, yeah, so when the when you read stories that, you know, the Met Police were trying to capture Jack the Ripper all for themselves or the city police didn't want the Met, 
Not really. Um, there would have been, don't get me wrong, there would have been some prestige if one or the other caught Jack the Ripper. Sure. But um, that would be something at a later stage. The main thing was to actually um, arrest the guy. Yes, but the op- that's the thing. The opposite must have been much worse. So that this idea yeah. is sometimes presented that, you know, if Jack the Ripper was fleeing out of city territory, into Met territory, running down towards Gorson Street, then the, the, the city policeman might stop at the boundary and just watch him go. And, of course, that would be much worse, presumably, yeah, in terms of P- PR or anything else, than just keeping yeah. going. Um, yeah. yeah, common sense. If, tells you if, that, if, some if exchange that... there. Absolutely, Mark. And if that did occur, the PC that stopped running would be severely reprimanded because he's failing in his duty. Yeah. End of. He's, he's failing in his duty. And also, the, the, you hear stories that the Met Police held on to information and did not pass it on to the city police and vice versa. I can't see that. That's Again, it's failure in duty. And that's ultimately how we should see that. Yeah. But as you said earlier, like if they wanted to actively, like an investigation that they were planning... Um, they would have to get permission that way, right? Like yeah. If, if, yeah. 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 If they were con- conducting observations or surveillance out of their jurisdiction, they'd, they'd contact the, the well, we call them subdivision, but there is, is police stations. They'd contact the police station within which that, ju- that um, street or road or house would be sitting in and um, ask permission to, to go. Um, simply because of one of two things. I mean, asking permission, you know, it's like going up to the school teacher and asking if you can go to the toilet. To, you know, yeah, you've got, when you've got to go, you've got to go, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's got to be done. Um, so very rarely do the city or the Met decline such requests. But it's also, it avoids duplication of work because the, that jurisdiction may already be working on that case. So, and also the fact that if... The beat constable is conducting his beat and he sees two suspicious men watching a house. What's going to be his first reaction? He's going to think that it's, it's two burglars casing the joint. But if, you know, you notify that jurisdiction who notifies the beat PC that two men will be watching the house and these two men are city policemen, then he's, he's aware of it. He can carry on with his duties and not worry about these two men watching sure. this house. Yeah. So Otherwise he becomes it's, suspicious yeah. quite quickly, sure. Exactly. Exactly. So the reasons are many, manifold, and it's not just, you know, asking permission out of courtesy. The, the main thing is, is to make sure it's done properly and not to compromise the situation and so on and so forth. Well, ne- next time I'm on Facebook, I have to use uh, hobnocking. Uh, hobnocking. I, I, yeah, I have to use that word next time I'm Knocking on Facebook. I'm just gonna, I'm going to adopt it as my Reddit username. <laughs> <laughs> you should. <laughs> Sounds like a hob. Obnocker of experience, Alice. I'm not well, saying that I would rule in this sport, but, you know, I think I could make a fair yes. showing. Unless Chuck yeah. is there. Delete, I'm going to cough over, over, over that bit of the, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, all right, any other questions? Um, Neil, yeah, a lot of people have been... Uh, you know, watching the extremely popular uh, British TV series uh, Ripper Street, and you know, I was just wondering uh, about your take on um, that uh, historical bit of uh, policing. Historical, <laughs> um, yeah. I think loosely, uh, loosely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it is, it is entertainment at the end. At the end of the day, I think it's very. Uh, I don't know if you know. Um, what I mean by the word steampunkish, but it is very steampunkish. Um, it's a modern, you get modern moral 
stories involved in in the Victorian times. Um, from a policing point of view, in terms of what they did, in terms of let's say uniform, I thought it was great because I thought it was pretty spot on. I know Keith Skinner, who we all know, the well-known uh, ripperologist, um, was the advisor on there. Um, the uniforms were spot on. There was a slight problem with the helmet badges, which um, only geeks like me would point, <laughs> be able to point out or identify, I should say. Um, but they actually, the, the use of telegrams in the first uh, episode, first ever episode, which again, not a lot of people knew, knew about, was, was brilliant. I thought that was fantastic because that's exactly what it was like. And the actual station, the way the station is laid out and the, the gas lamp um, without the, the glass in and the, the mesh in there, um, it was brilliant. It was spot on. Um, not so much with the stories, but, you know, I can live with that. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I was able to suspend my reality of the times and, and go with it, and I quite liked it. Yeah, thanks, because I just wanted to get your take on, yeah, just some of the historical accuracies. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, most of most of us watching, like myself, you know, don't really have a feel like of what station houses look like, or even what uniforms look like. I don't really know. Well, it's, it's very spot on. I mean, obviously, the problem I got was the badge, the helmet badge, the helmet plate, I should say, and the fact that you could see the Bobby's faces. But if you actually notice, compared to other programs, you know, Jack the Ripper with Michael Caine and the From Hell and so on and so forth, they actually wear the helmets properly, almost you couldn't really see their faces, their eyes, which is exactly how the police were supposed to wear it. They're only supposed to wear it from the base of the knuckle to the tip of the thumb, uh, from the, from the, when they put the knuckle on the nose, um, and the peak of the helmet should rest on the top of the thumb. They actually do that in Ripper Street, which I thought was great. You know, actors, being actors, would like their faces to be seen for obvious reasons, but in Ripper Street, these guys got it down pat. I thought it was really good. One of our uh, listeners sent in a question, Phil, uh, no location given, wanted to know how close do you, Neil, think that the the police came to capturing Jack the Ripper? And I'm going to just add a little on to that and ask you, do you think that the name of the Ripper is anywhere in the police files? Ooh, good question. Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> there we go. But no, um... I don't think they, they would have been particularly close to, to capturing them, really. And the nature of the crimes, out, being out in the open, he left very little evidence around, personal evidence. The closest we've got is the apron in Goulston Street. Now, some would say the graffito in Goulston Street was a pretty big clue. I agree, it is worth looking into. It certainly should be investigated. But whether it's evidence, I'm not so sure. Uh, the name of the of the killer in police files, Whew. could be. I just don't know. I can't really answer that really. Um, maybe. Yeah. I mean. I mean. I mean. Going going about Kosminski or somebody like Kosminski. For me, that will be pretty much closest. Damn it to who the killer would be. Somebody of Kosminski's ilk. And I'm not talking about a a insane Jewish person. I'm talking more about of a local person. Um, somebody who was in the area. And that's about as best shot as I can give it, really. I think one of the interesting things, just to reflect back on a question which was asked earlier about sort of social conditions in Whitechapel, is that we know that Whitechapel in the 1880s, well, 1860s, 70s, 80s, let's say, was um, was overcrowded, impoverished, 
Um, parental neglect must have been common. Parental substance misuse must have been common. These are the kind of um, psychological breeding grounds for people who end up with the sorts of personality da- uh, damage yes. which sometimes expresses itself in serial murder. And I think one of the interesting things about the police's uh, named suspects is that none of them originated in Whitechapel. <laughs> so actually, you yeah. know, you know, Druitt comes comes from elsewhere. Um, George Chapman and Kosminski and Ostrov come from overseas, mm. uh, and yeah. actually one of the commonalities of of the police suspects is that they, they don't actually have this very damaging upbringing in Whitechapel, which you'd have thought would be absolutely fundamental to the development of later personality defects expressing themselves in violence against women. Um, so, so we've we've got the the sort of all the social conditions, all the psycho psychosocial conditions. For serial murder and all the suspects coming from other places where those, those conditions don't necessarily it's apply. Very interesting. And, yeah, and of course, when it, when it comes to the the true uh, police files, you know, we, we are missing the suspect file, which we'd all love to see. Yeah. You know, resurface. Yeah. yeah. So, Neil, I understand you have um, another project about the police that's uh, coming up in April. Uh, yeah, um, I'm actually working with um, Adam Wood and the Metropolitan Police. We're basically we're reissuing um, Howard Vincent's police code. Um, just a brief explanation: Howard Vincent was essentially the creator of CID in the 1870s, and he uh, did a publication that was like a guidebook for all policemen to use in certain situations. It covered all sorts of laws and bylaws and so on and so forth. And this book was actually used. Um, during the Jack the Ripper murders and, it, well, it was, it was used for about 50 odd years, so it was used into the, well into the Edwardian era, so all, all your famous old, old time murders that you can recall, and this book was used. And what Adam and I agreed with the Metropolitan Police was basically, it was to upstand up Howard Vincent's original agreement with the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage Fund, which was to donate a percentage of the, um, profits and um, to the fund and we're going to uphold that as well so we're going to give a little back in, into the to the fund as well um i've also uh, working on another project with uh, mark ripper and trevor brand um basically um a, a book uh, covering the a to z of uh, victorian crime um which is uh, due out not for a little while um i think it's 2016 but but they're the two projects i'm working on at the moment well, that's great. Hopefully, especially, you know, being that you're donating to charity, everyone will rush out to get, um, what's the title of the book? Police Code? Yeah. It's ha- Howard Vincent's Police Code, 1889 is the full title. Great. Well, maybe we can get both you and Adam Wood back on here at some point in time to discuss the police code. Sure, that'd be great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Well, gentlemen, I think that concludes this edition of the Rippercast. I want to thank you guys very much for joining us, as well as our listeners. And I would like to encourage all of our listeners to go out and purchase a copy of Capturing Jack the Ripper in the boots of the Bobby of Victorian London. And also keep an eye out in April for the republishing of the police code. And remember, you'll be donating to charity when you purchase it. Thank you once again, gentlemen. Okay, thanks very much, Ali. Thank you, Ali. Ooh, this is going to be an R-rated outtake segment. Where's my damn copy of the book?
Damn it, what was I going to say? Where is my book? I'm losing my shit. <laughs> oh. What were you saying at the beginning, Alan? I don't know. That was like 20 minutes ago. You can't expect me to hang on to anything that long. Oh. Come on now. Oh, God, now I forgot the follow-up. There has to be a way to recover this. If it totally wiped everything, I'm going to lose my... Oh, dear.